This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Christy Flannery, who is a doctoral candidate here in the Department of History at the University of Texas, where she works on the Spanish Empire in the Philippines in the 18th century. Welcome to the studio. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me today. So today we're going to talk about Asian slavery in colonial Latin America, specifically looking at one slave in particular, Diego de la Cruz, as sort of archetype for the institution as a phenomenon. So why don't we start off by talking a little bit, give us some background on the emergence of Spain's Asian empire. Sure. Um, Well, I think you know today Manila is the capital of uh, the Philippines, which is the Southeast Asian country and actually the 12th largest country in the world, even though I think it doesn't get talked about a lot in maybe the US media. But for more than 300 years from the late 1500s to the late 1900s, Manila was the capital of the Spanish Empire in the Asia-Pacific world. I think most people associate the Spanish Empire with Latin America. Right. Yeah, but at its height, the Spanish Empire included a lot of Latin America, as well as colonies in Asia, the Philippines, the Marianas, and the Carolinas Islands. So how did the Spanish Empire extend into Asia in the first place? I mean, we know that Columbus first wound up in the Americas, which is a long way from Manila. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... Um, What people maybe forget is that when Columbus set out um, in 1492 from Spain, he wasn't intending to go to the Americas. His goal was to go to the Indies. You know, Indies refers to kind of China, Japan, and India at that time for Europeans. Columbus knew that the Indies are really rich. There was gold and silver there, he believed. Spices such as cloves, cinnamon, nutmeg, jewels, pearls. So really Columbus's original intention was to go to Asia. After Columbus discovered America, that dream of colonizing Asia was never really abandoned by the Spanish. So in 1564, you see the Spanish finally succeeding in establishing a permanent colony in the Philippines. First, they arrive in Cebu, and a few years later, they set up their capital in Manila. What was the motivation for establishing a new capital in Manila? Uh, Well, probably there were three reasons that Spain decided to set up their capital city in in Manila. The first was that Manila was an ideal location to trade with China. In fact, when the Spanish arrived, there were already Chinese merchants visiting and trading with locals. So it was very easy for the Spanish to kind of join that trade that already existed. We shouldn't forget that the Philippines was also a source of wealth of the Spanish, so they would tax natives um, in the form of tribute or forced labor, and that way, you know, become rich from the Philippines itself. And of course, Manila was a good location for Spain to convert all of Asia to Christianity. It was a kind of headquarters for lots of different missionary organizations that set up there. Even today, the Philippines is a long ways away, but in the 16th century, it was an incredible distance. Mm -hmm. So how was it connected to the rest of the empire and how was it managed? Some historians have described the Manila Galleon as the umbilical cord that connected Manila and the Philippines to Mexico and the Americas. The galleons are these huge ships that sailed between Acapulco and Manila almost every year for roughly 250 years until 1815. The galleons brought silver from Mexico to the Philippines and they returned from the Philippines with all these exotic luxury goods from China and other parts of Asia. 
And as you said, that voyage is really long. It's hard to imagine the trip from Acapulco to Manila was two or three months in duration, and the return trip could take six months. So, yeah. A long trip a long to, to make. Mm-hmm. We mentioned that some of the goods going back and forth between Asia and America were things like spices, silks, porcelain. Since we're talking about the slave trade out of Asia, are, are we to also presume then that there were slaves coming on these galleon ships as well? Yes, there were definitely slaves coming on the galleon ships. But I think we tend to focus on the porcelains and jewels and spices and forget that slaves also made that journey. So Manila was a slave society. Slavery was very common in Manila, as it was in other cities in Spain's global empire. One contemporary observer guessed about one third of the population of Manila in the early 1600s were slaves. So slavery is very common in Manila. I think an interesting thing, though, about slavery in the Philippines that maybe was different from slavery in other parts of the Americas was that Manila's slave population was ethnically diverse. So we do see Africans enslaved in the Philippines. Wow. Mm -hmm. And they often come from an Indian Ocean slave trade from the Portuguese colonies in East Africa. But we also see people from India enslaved um, in Manila. They're often described as Bengalis. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And also the Spaniards themselves, for a lot of the time that Manila was a colony, the Spanish were fighting wars with Muslim states in the southern Philippines and present-day Malaysia area. And when the Spanish would defeat these enemies in war, they would often enslave these people. So we do see Filipino Muslim slaves in the Philippines. Wow. So... What do we know about these slaves? What were they doing? What happened when they got to the Americas? Oh, well, that's a great question, Chris. Um, Unfortunately, we don't know a lot of information about the majority of Asian slaves who were brought from the Philippines to the Americas. But sometimes these individuals turn up in the colonial archive in unexpected and surprising ways, and we can learn a lot about some individuals. So that brings us to Diego de la Cruz. So how did you find him and and what do we know about him? Well, thanks to the wonders of the internet and a lot of archives these days have been partially digitized or uh, indexed archives have been put on the internet. So I was able to spend some time searching keywords like Chino um, on the Spanish government archive websites. And that led me to find a few records, including one about this Asian slave whose name was Diego de la Cruz. Diego was brought to Guatemala, actually, on a galleon ship in the mid-1600s. He runs away in Guatemala, and two years later, he's arrested for theft and put on trial. So what we have is that trial record, and that trial record tells us about Diego's experience as a Chino slave in America, and importantly, his attempts to become free. Can you sort of expand on what the term Chino means in the context of the Asian slaves? Sure. So Chino was a fluid ethnic category. Although in Manila, a lot of these slaves from different parts of the Indian Ocean and Asian Pacific world would have been described as Jolano or Bengali, once they arrived in the Americas, they were all described as Chinos. So I guess this term could really refer to anyone, any slave from this part of the world. Basically, it just signified that they had been shipped in from Manila. Uh-huh. And they were, you know, generically Asian in appearance. So what were you able to find out about Diego de la Cruz from the historical records? Well, one of the most interesting things about this trial record that we have is that Diego tells us 
some things about his biography in his own voice. So Diego told the judge and all of us now who are reading this trial that he was born a slave in Manila in his master's house around 1630. So his parents could have been from Bengal or Mindanao. We never know for sure. In 1657, when Diego was about 30 years old, he accompanies his master on a voyage from Manila to the Americas aboard a galleon ship. And this voyage ended in disaster for both men. Um, their ship, which is called La Nuestra Señora de la Victoria, suffered a slow and arduous Pacific crossing. Diego's master died at sea. He was probably sick and maybe wasn't eating, you know, a very nutritious diet. And, you know, the ship is way off course and finally weighs anchor in the small Pacific port of Amapal, which is today known as La Union in El Salvador. So it's a really long way south of Acapulco. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and from what you're describing, Diego wasn't necessarily sent across as a slave, but he was accompanying his master as a personal servant, Person- one would assume. Yeah, so it was common for people who were more elite to travel with their slaves on the ship. So priests would have commonly travelled with slaves, ship's captains and other wealthy and important passengers. Right. What happens when they get to El Salvador? So when they arrive in the port, um, what was consistent with the law or what was legal process was that the local government officials confiscated the goods of anyone who died during that voyage. And the idea was they would sell that property and whatever money was made would be sent back to their inheritors who were probably in Spain. So if they had children or widows, they would somehow get money through this huge transcontinental bureaucracy that was the Spanish Empire. Okay. So Diego de la Cruz, he's taken by the government officials and locked up in a prison with the intention to sell him later and send those profits to his family. So Diego finds himself in the city of San Miguel, which is close to the port, locked up in a prison cell, waiting to be sold to a stranger in a strange place thousands of miles from home. What's interesting is when he was in the prison, Diego began to show signs of sickness. So these might have been real signs of sickness, or maybe he was kind of pretending. Seeing that he was sick, the prison guard took Diego into his own home to recuperate. And from here, Diego escaped. Uh, He ran away into a country he didn't know and basically refused to accept the life that colonial law said he should live. That has to have been a very difficult circumstance for him. Mm-hmm. This is colonial Latin America. One presumes that Spanish was not as common in the areas he probably would have been fleeing to as a spoken language. He clearly looked different. Mm-hmm. So how did that go for him? Well, I think that we can empathize with you know the situation of being you know, a foreigner in a strange place And especially the misfortune of landing in El Salvador instead of Acapulco meant that there probably weren't many other Chinos in port. I I think we can assume that Diego spoke Spanish and there were people in that city or in this region who can also speak Spanish, so that would have helped. But this act of slaves running away, historians use the word called maroonage or marinage to, to describe this act of running away. And one historian, Marcus Redica, says that This act of running away or marinage requires many kinds of knowledge to be successful, technical knowledge, natural and social knowledge. And maybe of all of these, social knowledge or how to cooperate and make alliances was really key. So I think that's why this act of running away was particularly challenging for Diego de la Cruz, because he's in this unfamiliar place, so far from home, 
and it would have been much more difficult to navigate this kind of social relationships operating in Guatemala at the time. So what did he do after he ran away? Well, the trial record that we have, which is that only document that tells us about Diego's life, says that after Diego ran away, he was basically missing for two years. And then after two years, he's arrested for theft. And the judge is really surprised at Diego's ability to remain on the run for so long. And the judge said, he is a miserable, poor man who does not know anyone in the city or how he could work to support himself. So the judge is surprised too that Diego ran away and asked him to explain, you know, how did you survive out there? Right. Diego tells us that after escaping from prison, he remained hidden at a hacienda, which is kind of like a farm, belonging to the Sargento Mayor Don Pedro de Guinea. We don't really know if Diego chose to work there of his own volition or if he went there and was then perhaps kept there without consent or against his free will. Right. Mm-hmm. And he says that after two months on this farm, he went on a trip with a mulatto mule driver to a close-by city, and on the way back he escaped. So it could have been a mutually beneficial working arrangement, but uh, we don't know anything about his connection to either the estate owner or this mulatto, what are you calling, a muleteer? Mm-hmm. What's a muleteer? Muleteer is... Uh, Someone who's responsible for driving like a donkey train okay. through the mountains, carrying, you know, loaded up with goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we don't know if Diego was friends with his muleteer and maybe the friend helped him to move on to the next city where maybe he had a better chance at living as a free man. Um, maybe he somehow convinced this guy to help him escape. Maybe he was able to pay him. I think we can guess that his ability to speak Spanish probably helped him to negotiate this arrangement. Right. Mm -hmm. So what happens next after he escapes from this estate? So Diego testified that he then made his way to the capital, Santiago de Guatemala. It was a 250-mile journey. He says he travelled alone, and the circumstances of his arrest suggest he was surviving as a nomad, living as a vagabond, stealing to get by, and there's no evidence that he really joined any community. So stealing to get by Mm -hmm. and manages to make what is a pretty arduous trip through the mountains even today Mm -hmm. up to what is now Guatemala City? Well, actually, it would have been Antigua because... Ah, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The original city was destroyed in an earthquake and shifted, but pretty close by. It's a really long way and it would be difficult to navigate. Anyhow, unfortunately for Diego, his luck turned against him one night in July in 1659. So in a town called San Bartolome, an indigenous woman whose name was Maria Satina woke up at midnight and heard noises coming from a patio outside of her house. And she went to inspect these unexpected footsteps and discovered she'd been robbed. So she was missing clothes, her daughter's clothes were gone, several expensive embroidered blouses, petticoats and a maybe valuable decorative hair comb were missing. So, you know, Maria was very upset about being robbed and she immediately went out to get help from her 25-year-old nephew, Bartolome, who happened to be the judge of the nearby town of Espirito Santo. Bartolome then woke up his friends, um, Domingo Hernandez and Antonio Marquez, who were the town's regidores or local government officials. 
And these three men set out at night to try and hunt down this criminal who'd robbed Bartolome's aunt. And in the musky light of dawn, these men discovered a mulatto, as they described, sleeping alone under a pile of clothes, which they were pretty sure belonged to Maria Satina. And that man sleeping under the pile of clothes was Diego de la Cruz. So his luck had finally run out. That's right. Well, we know he went to trial, so they arrested him on the spot, presumably? So the men um, woke Diego up and he tried to bargain with them. He handed over the clothes so they let him go free, but they were intent on having Diego punished under the law. So those men took Diego to a local judge, Miguel Geronimo, and the judge then began an investigation of that theft. I think what's really interesting, you can read the transcript of that investigation, and many people come out to testify against Diego. So Maria Satina, all those men involved in the search, and not one person tried to protect or defend Diego de la Cruz. So he was pretty much an outcast and people wanted to see him punished. Uh Uh-huh. So what was the outcome of the trial? Well, during the trial, Diego tried to get off the charge. At one point he said... He was sleeping under those clothes, but he didn't know how they wound up there. Of course not, right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the judge didn't buy it. And later, he did admit to stealing the clothes. So the trial also established that Diego de la Cruz was a runaway slave. So they were able to connect his identity to paperwork that showed this man had, you know, the slave had arrived in the port two years earlier. So the judge ruled that in, in addition to being punished for the theft which involved being tied to a pole and whipped in the Plaza Mayor or the central plaza of Guatemala City in front of muchas personas. Diego was also sold into slavery for 220 pesos, as was the original intention of the government. Presumably, since you mentioned this is the only document that actually Mm -hmm. identifies him from here, he vanishes from the historical record. He does. I think it would be amazing to spend some time sifting through the records and trying to find out, you know, what happens to Diego after this point? Does he manage to escape again? Does he manage to get back to the Philippines and be reunited with his family? You know, we really don't know what happened from this point. As the historian in me, it's like, but I want to know, you know, but uh, unfortunately, especially when we're dealing with uh, the archives from a pre-modern era, you just you have to follow where they lead and sometimes the trail runs cold. That's true. I think we're really lucky to have this source in itself, because without this one document, we wouldn't know anything about this man, even that he existed. Right. Mm -hmm. So moving toward wrapping up, how much longer did the Asian slave trade remain an important part of the Trans-Pacific Spanish Empire trade? Well, that's a good question, Chris. Really, Asian slavery is something that historians have only very recently began to examine in a serious way. So one historian whose name is Tatiana Sijas has done a lot of important work on this issue. So this new research has shown that in the early 1600s, Asian slavery was legal in that the government allowed merchants buy licenses to import these slaves um, and they required that they would register the slaves they brought into the Americas at Acapulco, although there was certainly a lot of smuggling of slaves in that time. But by the late 1600s, trans-Pacific slave trade is basically eradicated. What led to its eradication? So in the 1670s, the Spanish crown declared that Indios or indigenous people can no longer be enslaved. So after that time, the only legal slaves in 
New Spain, which is today Mexico, were those of African ancestry. So this came about in large part because the church was saying, rightfully so, that the indigenous slavery impeded Christianization. Mm-hmm. Um, and also people who were invested in bringing African slaves to the Americas didn't you know, appreciate the competition. Right. And you also obviously see a lot of pressure from Indigenous people themselves making a case against enslavement of Indigenous people. And what Chinos were able to do in New Spain was establish that they also were Indios. They were Indios Chinos. So you see people from the Philippines and other parts of Asia who are enslaved in Mexico joining Indigenous parishes and marrying Indigenous women because many of these slaves are men. And this is one way in which they can establish an identity as Indian. They also challenge their enslavement in the court. So in Mexico, there was a court called the General Indian Court, and it's where Indian people could go and complain about various abuses of their rights. So we do see Chinos turning up at this court and saying, you know, I'm an Indian, I'm an Indio Chino, and I can't be enslaved because of this law. Yeah, so it's really interesting that over that century we see we see the emergence of racial slavery. Well, that's all the time we have, but uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us. This has been a fascinating look into recent scholarship on the Pacific slave trade, which, you know, something we don't talk about very much. And uh, wish you luck as you uh, continue to uh, work on this and hope that maybe you'll find the rest of Diego's story somewhere along the way. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.